probably the, that's probably that's good though. All right. Um, well, I'm supposed to remember something. Oh yeah. First cabbage tomorrow night. If you've begun for food for thought, we're doing cabbage. We're at the kitchen shelter. We're gonna have steak and it's a big barbecue out there. History, evolution of food, so on and so forth. So come on out if you're interested. They've been fun. Um, Tonight we're going to include the myths of the modern American mind series. We're going to try to give a sense of um, where the craziness that makes America unique has come from. <laughs> what are the elements that have contributed to it? And it's, I'm not the first person to come up with this, but I think an important way to think about the United States is as an ongoing experiment. And one way to conceptualize this experiment is to set yourself back a little bit in time. It's important to do this to understand how the world has become different, not just in America, but we're, we're one of the leaders in this. Uh, I was just thinking of trying to think of a historical example, and if, if you know anything about the enclosure movement in England, this is an important historical period. So 15th, 16th, 17th century farming much of it was communal. There was no specific property ownership as such. So you would live in a village and a piece of land there would be used by your family to plant. And, and a, a corner of a field there you could graze your cow on. And uh, you had access to this woodland to gather wood. But it was all controlled communally. The, the lord of the manor, in theory, owned the land, but the communal rights were historically uh, vested on top of that ownership. The enclosure movement was a transfer of that communal property into the ownership of the landholders. Sometimes this was quite brutal. The, the highlands of Scotland uh, were enclosed in the 17th century and the 18th century even, and today, the Highlands of Scotland's population is not back to what it was before the enclosure movement. This is how many people were moved off the land. If it is back, it's just back now. So, you know, 250, 300 years later, the population is maybe back to where it was before the enclosure movement. This is how many people were moved off of the land. The entire uh, village structure changed. So if you've seen European villages and people said, oh, wow, you know, they're, they're so cool because they're sort of centrally located and then the farms are around. It's because all of that land was shared. Nobody in particular owned it. As soon as the enclosure movement happens, the farms look much more like they look in the United States, which is where you have land with a house off in a corner removed because this is my land. I have fences around. It's a literal enclosure. This is where hedgerows come from. And so you were kicked off the land. Uh, you lost your rights. Often this would make you vagrant or very much impoverished you because important parts of your income and food security came from this. But this is a time when being a vagrant is illegal, punishable by death. <laughs> If, if you were someplace where people didn't know you, and you didn't have money, you, could, you would be arrested, and you could be killed or jailed or often just forced to go back to where you were from. And so this is just a quick snapshot to understand that before the enclosure movement, 
all the land was controlled communally. Much of it, not all of it, of course, but much of it. And this is true all over Europe in different ways. But even then, if you said, you know, this, week, I want, this year I want to plant rye. No, 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 this is not how land works. Because it's a communal decision. When are you going to plant? Well, it's got to be a communal decision. When can the cows go on to the pasture? That's a communal decision. How many cows? Communal decision. Right? So it's, this is the tensions in the old world tended to be not between individuals and states or corporations or, 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 or cities, but communals, communities of people, whether they are um, craft guilds fighting with other craft guilds, or burgers, which are to be a burger just meant you were a citizen of a city, fighting with rural people, fighting with the aristocracy, who was fighting with the king, right? But these large communal structures were all over the place. And, and what this did is it defined all kinds of things about you, where you lived, who your family was, what you were going to do. So the enclosure movement disrupts that, but notice this is one that goes from you're defined by a communal experience with the village to one where you're defined by land ownership and, and property rights. And then people moved into the cities and now they're, they're citizens of the city. Things like we take sort of almost, it's hard for us to imagine, but in France this was true, England this was true. If deer like jumped into your garden and started eating your food, and this is a time when gardening meant eating, meant living. You could not kill the deer because you did not own the deer. The landlord owned the deer. Rabbits, you could not kill rabbits. Now imagine how infuriating this must be if you're a farmer trying to grow food that if you don't grow enough, you will starve. And there's rabbits that you can't kill. Cattle could be grazed. You can't control that. If you want to move, you can't. You're generally tied to your village, to your land, to your property. So it was an astonishingly contained and controlled environment. But this is basically where we lived, humanity that is, since the agricultural revolution. You knew where you were in the world because of where you were born, who your family was, what your family did. You knew what your religion would be. You knew what careers were open and not open to you. You knew where you were going to live your whole life, which is wherever you were born, because traveling was, again, hugely restricted. And this is what it meant to be in a human community. This is what it meant to be alive. All of that undergoes an absolutely titanic shift with the discovery of the new world. And of course, we're going to focus on the United States. Um, it, it's, it's some, again, I want to just see some statistics here to give you a sense of the scale of this. Uh, look on the first page, it says, in the 30 years since 1979, China's urban population has grown by about 440 million to 622 million in 2009. Of the 440 million increase, 340 million is attributable to net migration and urban reclassification. Even if only half of that was migration, the volume of rural urban migration is in such a short period is likely the largest in human history. So that means in China, somewhere around 200-ish million people migrated in the last 30 years, just under 10 million a year, call it 8 million a year, around the numbers, right? It's hard to get these exact figures. 
one of the largest, if not the largest, migrations of humans in history. Everybody has noted this. You can find scholarship all over the world talking about this. What you can't find people talking about is the next line down there. In the U.S., about 14% of the population moves every year. About 40 million people. In 2011, roughly 16 million Americans moved out of the county of their previous residence. So every eight years, on average, the entire population of the United States moves a considerable distance. Every three years, the entire population moves, at least within the city where they are. The largest migration in human history happens every year in the United States. It's completely unprecedented. Large-scale migrations in history have always been famine, war, forced relocations. These were the things that the ancient world was terrified of. Some conqueror comes along, takes your city, and just says, okay, all you people, a thousand, ten thousand, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, a million, depending on where you are in history, you all have to move. This was terrible. You were uprooted from the place where you were born, from the people you knew, the environment you loved. Everything that you knew about the world was torn from you, and you were shifted to someplace new. You don't know people. You don't know how to survive there. You don't know how to do the agriculture. You, you don't know anything. It might be a different religion, different history. Bah! Horrifying. Truly one of the terrors of history. This, this is the Gulag Archipelago in Russia. The forced relocation of millions of people to a new place. As far as I can tell, the United States is pretty unique in that we have one of those every year. 14 million people voluntarily uproot themselves and move at least out of the county. Many out of state and then million or so out of the country. We're a nation on the march. And, and historically, this is what everybody was terrified, literally. If, if you were, you know, if you were evicted from your village, if you were kicked out, exiled, that meant death. America's sort of the land of the self-exiled. <laughs> we're the people who looked around and went, okay, I'll take the exile. <laughs> Which was what everybody has feared forever. Even the, now notice that China has a population four times as large as the United States. And it is one of the largest migrations in the history of the world. And it's not as large in raw numbers as America's is. And ours is totally uncontrolled. The Chinese have tried to control this. Ours is just willy-nilly. We just move everywhere. We move this, there's, it makes no sense. It's totally chaotic. We don't know who's moving where or why. We're more or less the only large country that allows that to happen in that way. Just says, well, anybody who wants to can move anywhere at any time for any reason. Lots and lots and lots of parts of the world are terrified of this. China certainly is. You can't do not do this in China. You can't do this in Russia. You know, it's, there's a lot of rules and laws to control this. Not in the United States. But it turns out that you don't need those rules and laws in most places, in many places, because people don't do this. They, they won't move. They don't want to move because you want to be where you're from, where your history, your culture, your people, people who know you, your identity is.
And so this is just unprecedented. It's incredible. Uh, like I said, and nobody talks about it because we're just so used to it. But there's no, I can't find, the China is the only comparable statistic I could find. And even given the scale of Chinese population, ours is larger. But it's just we're not going in any particular place. In China, they're all going rural, urban, which historically makes sense as a pattern. In the United States, we're just going whoosh, everywhere. We're just all over the map. Um, a second one is, is we talked about race. I talked about race earlier um, in an earlier lecture. And, and race is a way of building identity, right? We tend to try to put racial identity on other people, and then people try to stick racial identity on themselves. But you know, we'd like to think that race is something it's not. Um, but it, look at this great information from the census. I love this. Uh, the researchers who included university and government population scientists analyzed census data forms for 168 Americans, 168 million Americans, and found that more than 10 million of them checked different race or Hispanic origin boxes in 2010 than in 2000. <laughs> so magically, 10 million Americans have changed race in a decade. Right? That's, that's a little strange. If, if race is this innate prospect, your, your identity is like what we're always trying to say, which of course is total nonsense, but we're always trying to make this argument. Um, it turns out that we're not buying it. Uh, smaller scale studies have shown that people sometimes change the way they describe their race on Hispanic identity, but the new research is the first to use data from the census of all Americans to look at how these selections may vary on a wide scale. Do Americans change their race question? Yes, millions do, said study co-author <laughs> Carolyn Lieber. Uh, <laughs> you know, so millions, to tens of millions, ten million people died from a different race. So geographically, totally uprooted. Even our racial identity, totally up for grabs. We're also a country that refuses to be held down by history. If you know anything about the United States is we will not allow you to put your history on us or our history or anybody's history. We'll have nothing to do with history. Um, one of the great ones, and speaking of moving around, if you look on the back, I have a map of the United States when the Western migration sort of kicks off. Um, one of the important things is the main, like view, like the wagon trains heading west. We're all excited. We're going to go settle the west. <coughs> Well, you would go roughly to the Sierra Nevadas, and if you hung a left, you went to California. If you hung a right, you went to Oregon. California was Mexico, and Oregon was Great Britain. We have this weird idea that Americans were setting off to America. We were not setting off to America. We were setting off to Mexico and Great Britain, and everything in between was sort of Indian lands. And, and so, you know, it really had nothing to do with America at all. The impulse was not to settle America. The impulse was the impulse we have today, which was keep moving. Keep moving. There's a place out there. Keep moving. But we just will not, we will not allow, you know, just, not, just ideas from history like that to influence us very much. We know that we were going out to settle America. <laughs> which was apparently out there somewhere. It was a conceptual idea, not a physical idea, a conceptual idea. So we're on the move. We're free and freeing up from our history, changing our race around. And then there's religion, of course, another way that people identify themselves. Uh, as the shifting religious profiles of these generational core heights suggest, 
Switching religion is a common occurrence in the United States. If all Protestants were treated as a single religious group, then fully 34% of American adults currently have a religious identity different from the one in which they are raised. If switching among the three Protestant traditions, e.g. from mainline Protestantism to evangelical tradition, or from evangelicalism to historical black, is added to the total, then the share of Americans who currently have a different religion than they did in childhood rises to 42%. I mean, that is an absolutely historically unprecedented occurrence. To have nearly half your population, and by the next time the Pew does a study, it will be half, if, if the trend lines continue, switching their, their religion up. I, think, think of the Protestant Reformation. Was it pitched battle for a hundred years? between Catholicism and Protestantism. And this was huge, just ripped Europeans to shred, just totally devastated the place, <laughs> politically, economically, socially. And if you tried to switch from one to the other, oh, I mean, they would just kill you, both sides, either side, right? This was, this was, we agreed on one thing that the other people are bad. You don't just switch willy-nilly. And the only thing you could agree on is you could kill the Jews. It was okay to kill the Jews. <laughs> Always good to have a pogrom. Um, and, and the Jews weren't switching. In fact, we were terrified of the Jews switching. The Jews occasionally thought they had successfully switched. It turns out they hadn't. We tracked them down again. And so this, this continual turmoil, you were not allowed to change. Change was terrifying. Going from one to the other. But we're, like I said, 42% of the population and growing. Just switch around. Shopping. Right? I don't like this religion. I'll get a different one. I don't like this book. I like that book better. It's got a nicer cover. You know, it's just that moving around. So physically, absolutely physically, we're moving like mad. Again, in incredible numbers. Like probably every year the largest migration of people happens in the United States and has been happening for about half the 20th century since World War II. Um, we, we, I, get, I mean, it's just unprecedented. Religiously, we switch all around. And in fact, this is reflected, I, I just had to include this because right after my religion lecture where I said, whenever we talk about religion, the one thing we won't talk about is religion, right? We'll talk about anything but the content of religion. And so if people know that Indiana tried to pass the religious freedom law, yeah, so it was a very short law. And it said, I actually gave you two paragraphs here. Just, I'll just read a little bit of it. You don't need much because it gives you a sense. But the law itself is only about a page long. I almost gave the whole thing just, just for completeness. Uh, but it never mentions anything about religion. It never mentions a god, any god, a collection of gods. It never mentions a holy book. It never mentions any religion. There's no religious word in the entire thing except religion. It's the only word. And the two key paragraphs are here. Uh, except as provided in subsection B, governmental entity may not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability. A government's entity may substantially burden a person's exercise of religion only if the governmental entity demonstrates that the application of the burden to the person is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest and is the least restrictive means of furthering the compelling governmental interest. A person whose exercise of religion has been substantially burdened or is likely to be substantially burdened 
by a violation of this chapter may assert the violation or impending violation as a claim of defense in judicial or administrative proceedings, regardless of whether the state or any other government entity is party to the proceedings. If the relevant governmental entity is not a party to the proceedings, the governmental entity has an unconditional right to intervene in order to respond to the person's invocation of this chapter. What year was this? This was this year. This year. Uh, yes. This was this year. So what does the first paragraph actually say? So this is the thing. One thing it doesn't say in the entire bill, in the entire bill, I, I assure you, there's not one word that says Christians can or can't do this. Hindus can or can't do that. Leviticus says this, so this is what we have to do. There's no mention of a religion, no mention of religion except the word. What the, what the law was meant to do was try to allow people to discriminate against homosexuals. <laughs> that was the plan. But they couldn't write that. And, and notice this is a peculiar notion of religious freedom. Now, all over the world, Governments of all kinds, liberal, conservative, religious, theocratic, have laws about religion. And not surprisingly, in them they say things like, during the month of Ramadan, you shall or you shall not. It's a religious holiday. Here's the religious responsibilities you have. Here's what people can and can't do. See, we will not do this. Because in a country where 42% of the population changes its religion... What the hell does that possibly? What does a religious freedom bill mean? And so if you spelled out anything at all, if they said anything in particular, specific, mentioned any possible religion, people who believe in Shiva have the right to sacrifice children on holy days. <laughs> so they can't say that. Right? You, you, just, you just, nope, can't do it. Buddhists shouldn't look at women because it will make them unclean. Right? Nope, can't write that one in there. Anything you could mention would offend a huge section of the population. Because not only do we believe every religion, because we have a whole bunch of them, we, we're changing all the time. The balance of the religions is changing. What they mean is changing. Um, and so we have this, like I mentioned, the religion like we have this bizarrely religious country, but that believes everything and nothing. And it's all up for grabs. Because like I said, you know, 42% of the people change it. And this is not, by the way, some of this changes from people who were religious to not religious. More of the change, so in Europe, you can track this pretty clearly, a lot of countries in Europe have gone from being like either heavily Catholic to, well, people aren't that Catholic anymore. But not a lot of countries in Europe have gone from being heavily Catholic to being heavily Hindu. <laughs> this is the American model. We're moving from different sects to sect to sect. Non-aligned, non-believers is growing, but more people actually move around. And, and people move, by the if you can look further in the, in the pew thing, people move from non-believing to believing as well. So it's all up for grabs. Uh, it's, it's, it's just extraordinary. So, we have this unbelievably different culture from anything humanity experienced for its first 10,000 years since the agricultural revolution. Where do you live? God only knows. Where are you going to live tomorrow? Nobody knows. Historically, this would make you a gypsy. Gypsy is not popular. Um, you think, think of it that way. There was a great distrust of migratory people once you get agriculture. 
because people moving through with cattle or something to destroy agriculture, they kill, you know, the, the Genghis Khan doesn't have a good reputation. <laughs> These were migratory peoples, people from the steppes coming through. When they settled, they didn't like other migratory people. But this is, this is something new. This is a country of people who are migratory, but we never go anywhere, right? We just move <laughs> around <laughs> inside our country. But it means that we have no place. We are not from anywhere, and we're not going anywhere in particular. Where will you be in a year? Where will you be in five years? Where will you be in 10 years? If you're average American, you will move about four times in the next 10 years. One or two of those will likely be significant, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 miles. Which is, which is, again, historically, this is not how we've lived. So the notion of communal structuring, we've thrown that off. And it's important to remember it was oppressive. I want to plant my wheat today. Those old bastards over there think you don't plant wheat now because the moon's not in the right phase. I lose. I want to go someplace where I can plant my wheat anytime I want. The other thing about our migration, or our movement, our westward expansion, is part of what the enclosure story I wanted to talk about was because it showed that in 1500 in, in England, all the land was owned. In 1400, all the land was owned. In 1200, all the land was owned. In 900, all the land was owned. It was already divvied up. Similar in France, similar in Italy, similar all over the Western world. There was not an expanse of land. When you got to the New World, disease, by the way, inadvertently spread, depopulated whole swaths of it, and then we got rid of the rest of the Native Americans. They weren't densely occupying, and so it was pretty simple to do. It was an ongoing, it was about a 300-year project. But what it meant was, for the people who came behind, there was land. The one thing you knew in the ancient world, the old world, the world our immigrants were coming from, whether from Italy or Ireland or England or the Netherlands, was there was no land. And there never was going to be any. It was all owned. And it wasn't just purchased. It was purchased and owned 600 years ago. And the chances of you having access to any more of it, zero. Or very small indeed. So what do you do? There's this magic place. There's this magic place you can go where there is just land. And land, by the way, equals wealth. You can go and get land. This was the part of the dream. And so in, in, in the old world, if you want to call Europe the old world, most of the migrants came from, the notion of freedom, of material freedom, was absurd. You had material constraint, and you wanted mental freedom. Freedom meant freedom of thought, freedom to read, freedom to associate. In America, freedom meant material freedom. For the first time, and this has not been around for a thousand years, you come to a country where you might get 500 acres, 5,000 acres, 50,000 acres. Hell, we'll give you free land, you just homestead it. And if that doesn't work out for you, just move west. <laughs> Try again. That doesn't work out. Move west again. 
If people know George O'Keefe, one, one of America's great products, George O'Keefe, impressive human being in every way, her family, her grandparents, her parents' parents, had settled up in northern Minnesota. I think that's right, yeah, northern Minnesota. Not the friendliest of territory, but they had farmed successfully. They had come with essentially nothing, settled in cold, hard land. By the time she's born, her parents have, I think, almost a full mile of land, an enormous expanse, both for the labor requirements um, and for anything comparative to the ancient world that they might have had access to. And they had this total extended family on all of the farms, all over. They were in many ways wealthy. And compared to what their grandparents had come from, her grandparents, they were extremely wealthy to anything from the old world. And so what did they do? They sold it and moved. Because <laughs> this is what Americans do. You know, you, 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 all the relatives are there, the land is there, you're doing well, and they said, let's move to the south. And they did, and then everything went spiraling downhill there. And then Georgia moved to New York, and then she moved out west. And then she moved back to New York and back out west and back. You know, she moved all over the place. But that's the arc, to come from a country with little or no land to a country where in one or two generations you could achieve vast swaths of arable land, build a house, build barns, have berries, have cows. Wow. It's, if you've ever heard the phrase, it's a brilliant one, it's crazy, but it's not just your car, it's your freedom. This is the idea that there is space to move around. You can get out there and go. Materialism doesn't limit you. It gives you the opportunity to be free. So people say America is a material society. We are an incredibly material society. But part of it is because we associate it with freedom. Because we're so freaking materially rich. First time in history this has been true. Up until the 1800s, I mean, there's almost no growth. Starting in the 1800s in the Industrial Revolution, growth takes off. And where does it take off most and best is in the United States. I mean, we were nothing in 1790. In 1900, 100 years later, we're just the greatest industrial power in the world. It's, it's almost unfathomable that this happened. But it did. And of course, by 1950, we're astride the globe. It's America's century nonsensical as that idea is. But economically, industrially, we are. Because our you know, friends blew themselves up, which makes it easier for us. <laughs> um, but, but that change just totally changes your outlook from the way people used to live. So the notion of material constraint, that's gone. The notion of religious identity, that's gone. The notion of familial identity, when you move around, where are you moving from? You're moving from your family. Always a good idea, by the way. Uh, <laughs> potentially. Uh, you know, uh, you're moving away from your family. Where's your communal identity? We don't have one. History, that's not, we're not going to be held down by history. We're not going to be held down by the patterns of the village we lived in because we just moved out of it. Well, this is the way these people have always done it. Well, I moved away from where I knew how people always done it to some place where I don't know how people have always done it. 
So I have no idea what's going on. This is very liberating. There's a bit of a downside to that, however. This means that the United States is the model for the individual thrown out into the storm. All of the ways that you, I mean, we are social animals, we're convivial animals, we want to be with other people. And one of the strong impulses of humans is why cities exist. Or we don't all just live out in the desert on our own. We like to be with other people. The United States has taken the other impulse of individual expression as an experiment just to see how, long, how far you can push it. <laughs> what is your identity? Well, it's not religious because we don't have that. We change it all the time. And we won't talk about it anyway. It's not place-based because we're moving. And notice, even if you stay put, which people have probably noticed, if you have stayed put for a long time, everybody else moves around you. <laughs> which means that it doesn't even matter if you stay put. <laughs> I mean, really, it doesn't. Because the old idea of staying put was all the people stay put with you, and then you have a community. If everybody else moves away, no, you're just the last person on the lifeboat, right? You're just, oh well. And there's all these new people. Which is, can be great and exciting and interesting, but it means that all the other people are gone. So again, even if we don't, we actually don't have a choice. Because even if you don't move, so many other people move that it destroys community. Both for good and ill. I mean, there's upside and a downside to that. Hugely liberating. So when you have no religious identity... You have no geographical, communal, historical identity because we're not tied to any place or to any people associated with any place. No racial identity. We change our races. I mean, they're goofy anyway. One reason we're always trying to look for racial identity, by the way, is because we, we're desperate for it. This is one of the things I want to talk about. We're, we're, we're an incredibly racist country in our thought patterns because we're desperate for identity. I want to know who I am. Where did I come from? If I just knew my racial background, then I would have an identity. Then I would be somebody. Because I have no history. I have no tie to place. I have no religious identity. Where am I going to get an idea of who I am? All the ways we've historically done it, we've pitched out. So now we start grasping. This is what I think uh, when you think about some of the crazy movements, like uh, uh, some of the extreme ends of these movements, like with the extreme ends of feminism that say, you know, your identity as a woman comes from your innate biology. Well, this is just absurd. This is like going back to what the ancient Greeks said. This is what the Taliban says, right? Is that you're, you're, you're biologically identified, but people are so desperate for this. They say, yes, identify me by my biology, yes. But now, of course, people switch genders. Transgender, excellent. That means I didn't like my old identity sexually, so I'm going to have a new identity sexually. That's just more freedom, right? Just why should I be stuck with one sex? That's just that's oppressive. I want to move around. It's great. It's liberating. It's also unsettling, right? Because we want we want to believe well, we want to believe in all this stuff, but we keep pitching it over. So for a while we tried to stick with sex. Well, now that's all shot to hell. 
I think they said that Facebook, now you have like 16 choices of gender. <laughs> well, I'm serious. They, they, you can, there's like 16. We have a whole bunch. When people enroll, there's all this in the college. You're supposed to click. And they have like all these gender pre- One of them is other. Which I, you know, I, you know, I have no idea what it means, but sure, other. Uh, you know, great. Uh, that, that, but again, it, it is this resistance that we have to any form of structure that's going to keep us down. Because we're the people who left those structures. That's who we are as a community. We're all the people as a community who don't want community. And anything that presses us down. And so we keep throwing this off. Anything we can. So when you think about America, you have to keep this in mind. We have this weird mix. We have the desire for all of the identity and stability and recognition and status that all humans do. It's innate in us as social animals. Look at chimpanzees. We're just chimpanzees. We need that. On the other hand, we have the very human desire for individuation and self-expression. That's our experiment. How far can we push that? Anything you try to say to hold my individualism down, more or less innately, we push back on. I don't think it's conscious very much. We just say, no, I'm not going to do that. So again, people say we're materialists. I talked about money. Oh, you know, people are materialism. Of course we are. How else are you supposed to get status in a country where everybody's a stranger? It's important to think about this. 40% of our country moves. You know, 40 million people move every year. 40 million a year. 16, 17 million move far away. So we're inundated with new people. How do you tell them apart? Well, if you have a nice watch and a nice car and you dress a certain way, we go, oh, we know something about that person. It's comforting. It's reassuring. It's a type of power. It's a type of status. And we're desperate for it. Now, if you know somebody and you've known them all their lives and they suddenly show up in a big old huge Mercedes Benz or something with gold wheels, you think, well, that's just absurd. What the hell? Are you doing with that? Because I know you. I know that is the dumbest car you could have ever purchased. What the hell is wrong with you? Who are you trying to impress? Because we're not impressed. Because we remember you, right? We know you. <laughs> See, that, that sort of status doesn't necessarily work on people who know you. But we're not in communities where people know us. So it works great. <laughs> this, this, is, this is how we try. This is one of the ways that we try to build status. Um, people know we're, we're running this incredibly stupid educational experiment, experiment called Common Core right now. Um, and one of the big driving forces here is the common part of it. There should be a common core of knowledge shared by all Americans. This is a totally un-American idea. <laughs> the one thing America is built on is that we are not going to fall for that shit. We just aren't going to do it. We aren't. It's not going to work. I get. I just. There's nothing in American history that says we will do this. All of American history says we will. This is. A, we left the countries with the Common Core. We are the people who said we aren't going to take the Common Core test. We would rather cross the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, can they go, look at what Europe does? I'm like, yeah, these are the people who would take the test. They've taken the test for 500 years. We're the people who said, no, I'm not taking your stupid test. I'm going away. I'm going to go sulk in America. <laughs> and, and that's what we've been doing. And so, by the way, the common test, of course, is just failing miserably because people are just saying no. 
They're just saying no. I don't even know if people know why they're saying no. They have a hundred reasons. But I think mostly it is this innate, visceral reaction to saying, I don't think we should all learn the same thing at the same time in the same way with a stupid computer test. I just don't think we should. And so again, it's just, it's just blowing up. What we need is an uncommon, chaotic curriculum. We should have like the random test. Every student will be given a random test that will be evaluated by astrology. There you go. We would love that. That is the American way. We're, we're just not going to do it any other way. We, we are, honestly. I mean, seriously, think about this educationally. America has more top universities than the rest of the world combined. There's no reason for this. We don't have that many people. Why would there be literally hundreds of unbelievably high quality universities and colleges in our country? Because we rate them. One, we rate them. <laughs> one, we rate them. We're scorekeeping. That's one thing we love to do because that's what status is about. Scorekeeping. It, part of it is because everybody has their own. The agricultural colleges. They have their colleges. We have land-grant colleges all over the country, the agriculture. We have the private colleges, the old private colleges, the new private colleges, the liberal art private colleges. We have major universities endowed by states. We have major universities endowed by private money. Technical colleges, designed, you know, CIT, MIT. These are technical engineering colleges of the highest order. Religious, religious schools, huge, massive religious schools all over the place. Schools that don't give grades. UC Santa Cruz, Reed. Schools, make your own major. I love this, Evergreen. Just make it up as you go along. Whatever you want to do, cool with us. You know, this, every possible thing. Jesuit colleges. We have, the reason we have so many is because we have what every country has. But we have all of them. <laughs> right? You have religious schools in your country? You have madrasas? We have madrasas. You have Oxford and Cambridge? We have Oxford and Cambridge. You have a great technical college in China? Great, we have a great technical college. We have one of, we have a dozen of everything. Because that's what we like. We don't want Common Core. We want one or six or 20 of every possible version. It's part of our obsession with education, but it's also an outgrowth of the chaos. Because we don't know what the hell we're doing. You know, we just, we want everything. Because we, we don't want to be pinned down. Imagine a national curriculum. This is what the Common Core is trying to achieve. A national curriculum. If there's a standardized test for everybody to take, then that means everybody has to have a standardized curriculum. Yeah, this is just not going to happen. Um, or at least historically, it seems very unlikely. So when you think about things like our education system or, or our status seeking, don't be surprised by this. We have to do it. Because we have nothing else. What else are we supposed to do to, to, to gain recognition? We won't allow for nobility, because as much as we would like to be noble ourselves, we're very suspicious of anybody else being noble. <laughs> right? And, that, it, it, and so we resist that incredibly. In fact, this is why I think we love the stories of famous people, because they always get in trouble, and we love that more. Right? We have this leveling instinct. We want to raise the individual up, but not too high, then we want to smash them down. Right? Because <laughs> right? it keeps it, because we're terrified by that. Because somebody being up and powerful and strong is a threat to us. And so just, just keep, sm keep smashing it down. Keep. It's our resistance to, you know, our love-hate relationship with government. We want government to do things, but we don't want too much government. 
We want, we want government that's capable of a few things, but then it seems awfully intrusive. And, and we really, we have this struggle, this, this fight, um, that other countries find completely opaque and baffling. Because they think it's just obvious that the federal government should pay for roads. We're not sure if we should let them do that. And so several states refuse federal road money or federal <laughs> Medicare money, education money. See, this is other countries, I mean, literally, this baffles them. One, because generally the money is given out by the feds. They don't have state and county and cities and subsidies and park districts and municipal. They just have all that. But we do because we're like, well, we don't want all our money to go for thinking of education. Here's a great example. Some of the money comes from local taxes. Some of the money in Washington State comes from uh, land set aside for forestry. So schools have parcels of land that when they cut the wood, the school gets that money. Some of the money comes from state money. Some comes from property taxes. Some comes from grants that go for building, different pot of money. And some comes from the feds. And then, we, and then bake sales. And then we have our school bake sales. That's right. Uh, you cannot find, at least I've done the research, I cannot find any country that does anything even remotely like this. But part of it is, and part of this, if you look at the history of this, is perfectly clear. Everybody was suspicious. They did not want an outside entity to pay 100% because they knew, and they're right, the person who pays has a lot of say. And so everybody said, no, we want local taxes to go to local schools, at least in part, because there are schools. But because there are schools, we have a say in how they're run. And so people are always, you know, like, oh, Kansas, they won't teach evolution, or someplace else are doing something crazy, or, you know, it's just there's something left-wing over in California and something weird in Florida. And yes, this is great. This is wonderful. This is what you want. Because it means that schools someplace are being run totally differently, maybe right into the ground, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and schools other places are being run weird, right? It's just strange things are going on because it's diverse. Because we don't have, we don't have, and we tend not to want to have this top-down thing telling us. Again, that's what we left. France has a municipal education authority that appoints teachers all over the country. You take your tests, you graduate, and they say, you're going there to teach. And you just show up there and they say, well, the people in the government sent me. And I go, okay, you're our teacher. So yeah, this is not going to fly in the United States. Our local schools hire local teachers and teach whatever the hell crazy shit we've dreamed up for them to teach. <laughs> and if the state tries to tell us to do something else, we'll work around that. And if the feds try to tell us what to teach, now we're really upset. Um, and so, on one hand, we see the vision of going, oh, wouldn't it be great and organized and coherent? Well, yes, it would be, but that would be very un-American. Because think again, think about this. How, what could be less coherent than 40 million people a year moving? Than your entire population every four years relocating itself. That's crazy. So don't do that. No, we want to do that. So again, when you think about America, think about it. this is the experiment that we've been running. How totally decentered can you, how, how much of the social structure that supports an individual can you remove and still have a community? I mean, seriously, it's, a, it's an experiment. No one has ever tried to be this as far gone as we are. 
Why don't we have a public transportation system in our country? Because <laughs> we don't believe in public transportation. We don't believe in public, <laughs> is one way to think about it. People keep saying we need, you know, we need fast rail, we need high-speed trains, we need slow-speed trains, we need anything. But it's, I will see, be interesting to see if we get it. Because you have to convince a lot of people that the investment communally, federally, is worth it. Because Seattle can build some light rail in Seattle, Portland can do some light, light rail in Portland, but Portland can't build light rail to Denver. That's going to have to be federal, and we're just always a little leery of that. Other things could happen, and maybe we'll get it, but I'm suspicious. I'm very suspicious because, again, we have this antinomian impulse. Um, and so, again, we started, we talked about money. One other one we talked about was smartness. Why are we obsessed with this concept of smartness in America? We always want our kids to be smart. We want people to think we're smart. Part of the reason, not entirely, but part of the reason is it's an innate quality, like race, like gender. And so then I can build an identity on that. That makes me somebody, and I need to be somebody. How do I convince strangers that I'm somebody? Well, one way is to be recognized as smart. Then I matter. Then it's a type of power. I'm a significant person. I mentioned this before, the Pacific Islanders used to tattoo their life's history on themselves. And so when two strange Pacific Islanders would see each other, they could read who the other person was on them. I think we may want to do that. <laughs> I think this is, this is the kind of art we're on, because, you know, how else do you know who people are? Facebook. Facebook. That's right. Hey, social media. There's a reason a lot of these drivers come from the United States. A, because we're crazy enough to let people do anything. And it's important to remember this. Most countries have rules. If you want to start a company, this is difficult. If you want to acquire investors, that's very complicated. If you want to do something on the internet that allows 100 million people to communicate with each other, the government is going to interfere in that. United States, why? Oh, sure, whatever. Knock yourself out. Go ahead. And then later we go, what? What the hell is that? <laughs> we should do something. But it's always way too late. By the time we think we should do something, way too late. In China, they've done something. They're doing something. They're, they're heavily cracking down on this. And Europe is even dicey because, like, oh, we have all these privacy rules and laws you're not supposed to violate. This is all just a bunch of barriers. Sort of, again, it might protect the individual. Good. But it also limits the individual. Bad. And again, we almost invariably side with don't limit the individual, even if it means privacy violations and all this. Think gun rights, very controversial. You know, wow, do we want 300 million guns? We, apparently we do, by the way, we have them. Um, so that's roughly the number they estimate, that there's 300 million guns. It's, it's, it's one for everybody, which is nice. Um, <laughs> everybody has guns. Um, but, you know, why? <laughs> and the American response apparently is, why not? <laughs> if I want to have a gun and I'm not actively shooting somebody at the moment, what, what's the problem? <laughs> that, that's, that's where our laws are structured. As long as I'm not actually shooting you, it's all good. I'm not also supposed to point at you in an aggressive manner, but that's okay too. <laughs> um, but, you know, so why not? And everybody makes the arguments, oh, the country would be much safer without the guns. Certainly true. 
Fewer gun deaths, yeah, that's obvious, that follows. But at what cost? Almost every country in the world has said, well, it's no cost at all. You just don't have guns available to people, and then all this, a lot of this violence and death goes away. And hey, that's great. In America, we're like, no way. Rather have the violence and death than give up a little bit of this sense of personal capacity. And again, this, this, whether it's good or ill is a whole different question, but this is absolutely within the impulse of what makes us unique, what makes America, America. Um, and so just, so again, I'm trying to think of all the lectures we did here. We did smartness, we did money, um, which I think a lot of this comes down to status. We did race, again, status and identity politics, uh, you know, writ large. Um, and the question that I wanted to end with, I'm going to time, yeah, I uh, wanted to end with, is, well, where does this go? And this is totally speculative, by the way, because who the hell knows what's going to happen? Nobody knows. But I do think it is curious to wonder how long can we continue this? Is there a point where you reach it that people start saying, you know, I want to sacrifice some of my individual liberties, either conceptually or factually, for the benefit of the communal support and identity I would gain? Homeland Security. Yeah, homeland Security, that's right. Homeland Security is a great, great example of this. Um, <laughs> So far, we've said no. History suggests that when you aggregate human populations in cities, it is necessary to forego a, a certain degree or even a large degree of independence. That these two things, be just, just because you put a lot of people together, you need more rules, more order, more press down on the people, keep everything running smoothly. And so as the population shifts to cities, this may be the case. However, America might come off with these incredibly crazy cities. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. The urbanification is going on. But, but think about this as we move forward. What is likely to drive us to either more independence or more, uh, more communal ties? One note to make, and this I think is, this would be my guess, but I don't know, I really, honestly, this is speculative. Um, and that's why I want to give you the map of the westward expansion. We think the westward expansion was in America. It was not. The westward expansion was into foreign countries or unclaimed territories. The Indians had it, but they didn't count, of course. Um, so I think the impulse, and there is some demographic evidence to suggest this, may be simply that we keep moving. That as we feel any sense of repression, and, and restricted repression is the wrong word, if we feel hemmed in by social cohesion, think of it that way, um, we'll move out of the country. Like we we out-migrate about a million Americans a year, um, which is a pretty large number. And if that continues to grow, then it will suggest that the liberty and the individual freedoms that we thought we had in the United States, when those start to sort of maybe be restricted or, or, or um, we feel threatened, we'll move on. We'll probably move more people to Alaska. <laughs> but, but most certainly we'll move overseas if this continues. So I think that's my last thought, is that what we associate with America physically 
is incorrect. It has been for two or three hundred years the locus of a type of world outlook of this rejection of the communal and the orderly for the individualistic, for the antinomian. And that if, which I don't know if it will happen, but if it begins to feel that that communalism is then pressing in again, probably we'll just move on. Because that's what we did from the East. When the East got too orderly, the land was owned, the opportunity started to diminish, we moved West, and we moved West, and we moved West. I've got land for sale in China. <laughs> yeah, you can sell land in China. Move to China, and people do. So the in-migration, again, 40 million people a year, 14 million, 16 million moving a decent distance, suggests that we're still moving. As the world internationalizes, more opportunities, more contact, I think the chances are, are good that if we ever feel too hemmed in, too orderly, too restricted, we'll simply go elsewhere. We'll look for new opportunities to continue the Western expansion, which is intellectual. It's an intellectual expansion. It's a personal experiment. Um, and so that really, so, so keep an eye on that and think about that. Because one way, not the only way, but one way to understand America, and I think that coheres many of these ideas that I've talked about, is as this experiment and how much can the individual live outside of a coherent, stable social environment. And when you give up racial identity, historical identity, family identity, social status, geographical history and location, sexual identity, boy, you've, well, I don't know what's left. I mean, you're really running to the end of it. Um, and we seem to have pursued it that far, so I don't see any reason why we would, you know, give it up now. So, antinomian America, here we go. Thank you very much. Mr. Thank you. Mr.